Hello, and welcome to The Great Collide, where we explore the intersection between politics and faith. I'm Leanne Nolet. And I'm Jasmine Taylor. The influx of refugees crossing our southern border has become a major dividing line for our faith groups, and the policy of red states busing immigrants to blue cities has further inflamed the conflict. Jasmine, today we're going to hear how Chicago faith communities are responding to the crisis and what we as people of faith should do. Let's welcome Emily Wheeler, Program Manager for Faith Community Initiative, which is working to provide housing and support for the recent influx of migrants to Chicago. We also welcome Reverend Ashley McFall Irwin, pastor of Lakeview Presbyterian Church, which is currently housing a refugee family. Emily, what is Faith Community Initiative and who all is involved in it? Well, uh, thank you for having me. Um, the Faith Community Initiative is an interfaith organization uh, that works to help faith communities who are interested in hosting asylum seekers and new arrivals into their buildings. Um, we work on a model of uh, a year of support and that model was built because the founder of our program, the Reverend Dr. Beth Brown, um, was a part of another organization uh, that is a collective of over 44 plus different faith communities and organizations called the Sanctuary Working Group. Uh, the Sanctuary Working Group has been meeting since uh, early 2020. Uh, they're a group of people who are all in the field of work uh, helping immigrants to thrive uh, in the Chicagoland area. And uh, she was a part of this group because her church, the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church, uh, has been housing people in their building since 2019. So um, they have been working with asylum seekers uh, consistently since then. And uh, she saw the need for the specific niche of uh, support for faith communities in getting involved in this work because there's a lot of people out there who want to help but really have no idea where to start or what it even looks like uh, to be able to support somebody um, in a way that is sustainable and long-term and impactful uh, for people's lives. So uh, we were founded in uh, June, well, technically we were founded in May uh, of this year of 2023, um, and we received a, a state grant from the state of Illinois um, in June of 2023. So that's when we started our operations. That's when I was hired. And that's when our uh, first full-time case manager was also hired. So um, our staff currently is two full-time case managers and myself, the program manager, and um, the director, Reverend Beth Brown. Uh, she is not a technically paid staff, but she helps us run day-to-day uh, -day operations. And um, that's, that's our team. And we work very closely with uh, a lot of other, the faith uh, communities that we're involved with because they're really the backbone of all of this. Um, they're the people who make things happen and keep things going. Um, and so we have, you know, our kind of nucleus and then we have a, a ton of, of other organizations and, and faith communities that are really doing the day-to-day -day work with the families directly. So um, I could say a lot more, but I'll, I'll just give you that to begin with. All right. So Ashley, tell us about the family Lakeview Presbyterian took in and what was the process like? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having us on there. And 
you know, Faith Community Initiative have been an incredible support to us in this. I don't think, um, you know, it would have been wise for either us or the family just to do this without having their knowledge and support in the midst of this. So really what happened was um, somehow Emily and I got connected. I think it was through um, Pastor Beth at Lincoln Park um, Presbyterian Church. Like, I am very new to Chicago. I arrived, so really my finding time in Chicago and Faith Community Initiative is about the same. I got here in June of 2023, and so kind of late summer, um, Emily came over to the church and kind of introduced me to the idea of the program, and it resonated in many ways. Um, Lakeview Presbyterian Church um, it has been involved in some of this work, not necessarily of having people physically in their space before, but in the 1980s were very involved in the sanctuary movement at that time. So it, it felt like this was a real thread that has come through the church's history in many ways, and that at this time and place may be a way that we can step into this work alongside folks in a different way. So Emily came, talked to me, you know, I'm Presbyterian, we love committees, so then my job was to take it to the social justice committee of the church, and so we started the conversation there, um, and Emily also came and spoke with them, um, and I think for our group, knowing that we would have the support of Faith Community Initiative, that we were also not the first and would not be the last to do this, that we were part of a, a community of other congregations and of other faith communities around the city, that it felt like, okay, this is something that we could consider stepping into, and as Emily says, it's a, a year-long um, relationship up to a year, and if our family are ready and, and want to move earlier, we will support them in that, but we have committed to them um, for the next year. And so Emily works with us in finding the right match. Um, and for us, then the, our kind of next process of approval in our system was it went to our governing body of the church, which is called the session. Um, and there was never any concern on Lakeview side from a, we want to do this. There was some financial concern of, we um, provide um, $900 a month of financial support to the family. Um, and there was a little concern, you know, we don't have a massive church budget and um, where are we gonna, and it wasn't written into this year's budget, are we gonna be able to do that, right? Well, uh, you know, there's some faith comes into that, right? If this is something that we're being called to do, that there's a way that's gonna be provided. and. And what for us that came is, one, we have had people step up in our own congregation financially to support. We also um, have been working with a church in the Chicago suburbs in Deerfield, a Presbyterian church there, who stepped up and said, we don't have the good location like you have, um, but we have financial resources that we would love to help provide. So they right off the bat committed and gave us um, $5,000 to get this going. So we are very grateful. And I think I think Emily would probably speak to we're seeing that happen in lots of ways, right? That there's some churches, we've got the space, we've got the location, we might not have the financial resources, but guess what? We're part of a big old um, network, not just of churches, but of folks of other faiths um, that are going to step up and help in that way. So that was our process. Then we got matched with this family. I met Emily at the shelter downtown, and we made the the journey up to the church here for them um, to call this place home at this point. And, you know, just a little story from that ride. We, and I do not speak Spanish. I, I know more words now than I did um, six months ago. But, um, 
it was some kind of excitement uh, from the children and they were point there was a rainbow a double rainbow actually um over lake michigan as we drove um up to the church for them to move in that first day so i think all of that all of us took that as a wonderful sign as we kind of began this new adventure together i can speak a little bit to the process of getting the family uh in particular like how we choose the family and who they are um, and that process, uh, the Faith Community Initiative uh, was founded to originally respond to uh, the overwhelming number of people who were living at police districts here in Chicago. Um, I know that anybody who lives around or has seen uh, any of the police districts with a lot of people, that it's you know it's pretty dire situation, um, and we all know that winter was coming, um, and so. Once we had the go-ahead from Ashley and, and her team over at Lakeview, we were very excited. And uh, once we get the go-ahead from a faith community to let us know that their space is going to be ready, uh, we reach out, or I, sh- I say we, it's me. <laughs> I reach out to um, the lead volunteers from whatever police district is closest to that faith community. So in this case, it's the 19th district um, on Addison. And uh, I reached out to the lead volunteer uh, that I am in contact with there. And I let her know, you know, hey, we have the space. We think that they're gonna be able to accommodate a family of four. So do you have a family of four in mind that has a particularly acute need at this time um, that, you know, might not survive as well in a shelter environment? Um, And so she said almost immediately, yes, I have a family in mind exactly that would be perfect for this situation. Um, And she let us know that there was a family who had been living at the 19th district um, and their daughter uh, had a heart condition, has a heart condition um, and was going to need heart surgery. And so they were moved to um, the Inn of Chicago shelter downtown. Um, and the the parents were very concerned because the shelter staff were not honoring the doctor's note that they had saying that she needed to be isolated. Um, and so they were having a really tough time. Um, and so Blair, the lead volunteer, was able to connect me with uh, the mom of that family, and um, she was able to uh, get get us in contact with each other. And so I reached out to the family personally, let them know who I was and what our program was and what it entailed. Um, and part of my job is also making sure that people understand the difference in um, you know choosing to leave the city shelter track versus, um, you know, joining our program, which, um, you know, the city shelter track has some different uh, qualifications that you are eligible for, such as the ACERAP funds, uh, which unfortunately is no longer uh, something that people are eligible for in the shelter system, funny enough. So um, I let them know what, what it would entail agreeing to move into this space and then, you know, I let Ashley know, hey, here's the family that I think is going to work out. And we had them come and, and see the space. And um, it's it's a really great space that they have in the building. And so they were very excited. Um, and the kids immediately wanted to move in. They were very, very excited. You're doing awesome work. Now, I have seen 
and heard some folks take that not in my backyard approach to to this influx of immigrants in Chicago. So do you think the burden um, or the opportunity of housing migrants should be shared between wealthier and poorer communities? I think that uh, Chicago as a city actually has such a rich history of immigrants uh, in this city, building this city and making it what it is. Um, and, you know, I, I hear a lot in the news, um, you know, people throw around the word unprecedented a lot. And uh, I always like to remind people that this is entirely precedented. Not only was this, uh, you know, wave of of people coming across the southern border of the U.S. expected, it was, you know, it was expected since 2020. It was something that people knew was going to happen for a while. Um, but also the the phenomena of thousands of immigrants arriving at the same time, all at once into the city of Chicago has happened before. And it has been something that has extremely enriched our, our city and the, the place that we have come to know as Chicago. And I think that, you know, it's what I always approach people with that mindset with is, you know, I think we hear a lot of, well, why aren't our citizens being taken care of the same way that these people are being taken care of? And I think that the root of a lot of people's anxiety and fear and distrust come from this idea of scarcity and the the feeling of a lot of people in the U.S., not just Chicago, but all over the country, of this this feeling of of divestment in these social care networks, which is to say that, you know, we we have a lot of issues in this country around, you know, um, affordable housing. We have issues around mental health care. We have issues around health care. You know, it's there's a lot of things that leave a lot of people falling through the cracks, you know, in the state, in the city, in this country. And I think that people's response to that is to find somebody tangible that they can blame for things that happen where they are getting, um, you know, maybe passed over or, you know, they're anxious about their own finances. And, you know, they might not know if they're going to, you know, be able to afford their car payment or, you know, all these different things, which are very real concerns. Um, and, you know, I always say to that, that I think the, the, quote unquote solutions to these problems benefit everybody. And, you know, I think that like the city of Chicago specifically, we have a huge deficit in affordable housing right now. And increasing affordable housing in the city benefits every single person, whether you are a citizen or whether you are a new arrival. And the same can be said for how we support the people experiencing homelessness in the city. You know, I know that that was also a, a major concern for people saying, you know, well, why are we giving all these people this this shelter free of charge when we have people sleeping in tents around the city? And, you know, to that, I say, I think that to bring it back to faith communities, I think that faith communities specifically have been in this space of filling the gaps 
that our government has left kind of wide open, which is, you know, caring for people experiencing homelessness, which, you know, our our founding pastor is the pastor of a church that has a fully functional homeless shelter in their basement uh, that has been operational since, you know, 1980. So um, there's a lot of faith communities that serve populations experiencing homelessness. There's a lot of churches and faith communities that, you know, serve people experiencing addiction. There's a lot of faith communities that, you know, I could go on, the list goes on. And um, I think that to people who say not in my backyard, I think I approach them with a lot of care because what I hear is people aren't caring for me enough. I feel like I don't have enough of something. And I think that my response to that is, you know, there is enough to go around. And to your point of wealthier people stepping up, I think that that is what we've seen work amazingly well in the faith community initiative, which is, you know, we have these faith communities that are in the suburbs or, you know, wherever they might be that see what's happening in the city and want to do something about it. And they have you know, uh, a larger funds to draw from, and they're able to then support people in the city that, you know, might not have as as large of a budget. And so I think that if we are able to connect the right pieces together, we can do amazing work. And part of that is connecting the people that have money with the people that have space. And, you know, that's a lot of what we do. And so right now we're we're really in a big push to try and get more suburban faith communities involved um, and, you know, more, more people in general involved, you know, even if you don't have a space, if you don't have um, time or energy to devote to this, there's plenty that can be done um, to kind of even out uh, the, the scarcity, the feeling of scarcity that many people have, because the reality is we live in abundance. And so I think being able to remind people of that fact uh, is huge. You know, it was recently announced that the city wasn't going to be those tents that they were going to do. Programs have been mixed. And so they're they're going to probably do a lot of relying on churches, from my understanding. You kind of talked about it, but tell me a little bit more about your goal for housing migrants and churches. I will say, um, I think that part of the, the city's uh, decision to mention faith communities uh, in their plan moving forward is for several reasons. Uh, One of those is there was an initiative launched called the Unity Initiative, and that is separate from us, um, but was announced at a press conference um, without our knowledge of that it was going to be announced. Um, Our director, Reverend Beth Brown was at the press conference. She was invited there to speak and um, nobody gave her a heads up that they were going to announce this uh, as happening. But um, the city actually was involved in securing funding for this initiative. um, And they are working uh, on a completely different model than, than we base our work off of. So They work um, with a network of churches that are housing large amounts of people. So usually uh, I think the it's around 20 to 30 people um, in in, in a given location. 
and they are housing people for 30 to 60 days. And so it's based on a short-term turnaround. And um, the the guy who's uh, in charge of this uh, initiative, his name is Pastor Zayas, Z-A-Y-A-S. Um, and, you know, he's been doing amazing work um, and getting people help with finding jobs and, you know, all, all the important pieces. Um, but we are very different uh, initiatives, um, mainly because the Faith Community Initiative is based on a long-term sustainable model. Um, and I think that what the city has been realizing throughout this whole process is from, from the jump, they really were in emergency response mode. And that had a lot to do with the mayoral office completely changing hands kind of in the middle of all of this. So there was a lot of catching up to do um, for Brandon Johnson's uh, office and everybody involved in the city of Chicago um, mayoral uh, realm. And so there was a lot of um, scrambling in the spring of 2023 in terms of trying to figure out what to do because there were thousands of people arriving, um, you know, every week. And I think that, you know, I have real empathy for the people who, who work for the city who had to make decisions about what to do because the reality is something had to be done and it had to be done quickly. And if anybody knows anything about city government, things happen very slowly usually and so, um, you know, the, the things that they were able to get together quickly, maybe were not ideal and, you know, maybe were, were very short term focused, but that, you know, I, I understand the reasonings for that and those for those choices. Um, but, you know, I will say that I think the, the city has begun to look towards faith communities because they realize the need for a longer term solution, um, which, you know, I will say that, you know, the Unity Initiative and things like that are, are more short term. Um, but I think that one of the major issues in a lot of the shelters and, you know, just uh, places like the, the police districts and um, places that the city has been trying to, to use to house people, the, the issues have been largely around um, the lack of consistent care. And uh, what I have heard, you know, if, if you speak to anybody who has been living at a shelter, um, you know, I think that that what we have been hearing from people is you might be told that there are case managers or social workers that are going to be talking to you about, you know, how to access WIC, for instance, or how to access SNAP or how to get your, um, you know, immigration papers started. And the reality is that there are so many people that have such a huge need that the, the few people that are in the shelters doing the work are completely overwhelmed. And so they're really not able to see as many people as need to be seen. Um, so, you know, for instance, Catholic Charities, which is another great faith-based organization that has been doing a lot of work um, in this realm in Chicago, especially, 
um, you know, they were the ones contracted by the city to handle all of the ACERAP funds. So the ACERAP funds are the Asylum Seeker Emergency Rental Assistance Program. Um, that's through the state, through IDA. And um, so Catholic Charities is currently only in 14 out of the 28 shelters. Um, and I actually, uh, a couple months ago, uh, reached out to the city via my alter woman's office and asked, you know, if OEMC, the, the um, Office of Emergency, uh, oh, I forget what, what the full acronym stands for, but they're the ones that handle all the buses coming in and they allocate people to the different police districts. So they're kind of ground zero for new arrivals um, and they handle all the shelter placements as well. So I had asked them if there was any way that they could get me a list of what people could expect at shelters. And I was told essentially no, um, because there is such um, such different levels of care, shelter to shelter. So, you know, you could be told like, yes, there are social workers here. There are, you know, X, Y, and Z services that you can receive here. but you know, if you go to, uh, you know, a different shelter, you might not get any of that. And so um, I think that the city sees programs like ours, which really are based on the community um, structure that a lot of, a lot of, you know, faith communities have, which is there are people who know each other, who see each other at church every week or you know, that they have relationships and, you know, they, they have a desire to be involved in their neighborhood and they know the neighborhood and, you know, all of these things where um, there are people who are invested in their neighborhood and their community. And when you bring a new person in or a new family in that is, you know, brand new, the best thing for, you know, people getting their feet under them is to have a network of support. And so what's really been lacking um, on the city level is th those networks of support, which again, I don't blame the city for at all. I, it's extremely difficult to manufacture networks of support from zero. So, um, you know, I think that faith communities have been looked to as a solution, you know, because of that, but also they have a lot of space. There are a lot of churches in Chicago that have tons of space. So, you know, I think that it's a combination of all of those things. What is the long-term strategy with all of this? Where do you see um, this going with housing and different things like that? What for long-term are faith communities involved or maybe just talk a little bit more about that? A lot of organizations doing this work received grants like like we received the state grant and the state grant runs out in June of 2024 so we're currently in the process of uh you know trying to find uh somebody else to sponsor our organization for the long term so i think that what we're seeing now especially at the end of 2023 we're almost at 2024 now um is there is this kind of shift in thinking of you know we see it with the city trying to empty out all of the police districts. And we see it with the change in policy of the shelters now giving people 60 day notices. Um, you know, I think that there is this feeling of, okay, we need to switch gears and we need to start thinking about the long-term. 
And, you know, unfortunately, things like housing take a very long time to, you know, get worked out. And so um, what we, you know, I think there have been a lot of people on the ground that have been trying to do outreach to landlords specifically. Um, I know that up here in the 48th Ward, um, up in Edgewater, um, I'm involved with um, a group through the, the Alder Woman's Office here. We did a, a call to landlords um, that is recorded and on their website and available for any landlords who have questions about, you know, what does it look like to, to have somebody as a tenant that doesn't have a credit history or somebody that, you know, is maybe not as secure in their employment. Um, and, you know, I think that it, like I said earlier, is hugely based on a sh need for a shift in how we think about these social care networks that we have in, in this city. So, you know, I think that um, we're seeing little changes all over the place. Like we have schools that, you know, I have noticed around Chicago now who have signs up in Spanish as well as in English. And, you know, that wasn't the case a year ago. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of people who, you know, have been seeing this happen that are just now stepping up, which is great. And, you know, I think that people will continue to step up um, as they start, you know, learning more and talking to more people and getting to know families. And, um, you know, I think that the long-term question of things is, again, how do we set people up for success in a sustainable way where, where they're able to be self-sufficient? Because, you know, I think that a lot of people's complaints on the city level have been, you know, this, we can't just keep giving money to these groups who are managing these shelters. We can't just keep, you know, funneling money when, when a lot of what we're seeing is people leave the shelters, they go to the police districts and then they go back to another shelter and then they leave it. So we're seeing a lot of people repeat in the system. And, you know, I think that um, for me, one of the things that I would like to see in the long term uh, from the city of Chicago, but also, you know, from organizations doing this work is, um, you know, better tracking of, you know, who is, for instance, like how many people are getting evicted after their ACE RAP funds run out and, you know, how, how many people are just kind of dropping out of the system completely. So, you know, we have people disappearing. We have, you know, there's a lot of concerns, obviously. Um, but I think longer term thinking about how we can step up as communities specifically. And, you know, I think one of the things that I love the most about Chicago is how strong neighborhood identity is. And I think that one of the great things that I have seen through this work is people really wanting to, to show their love for their neighborhood to new arrivals and wanting them to understand like why, why we think Chicago is so great, even if the winters are unbearable. <laughs> um, and so I think that uh, in the long term, I hope to see a lot more collaboration um, and a lot more community driven support. I'm just going to add to that, you know, I don't know what way it will look like for faith communities in the long term, you know, it may be that we continue to house in this kind of way, or, you know, I think it's just always about listening to our community and the folks on the ground, right, and what is the way in that time 
that we're being called, be that through advocacy, be that through the kind of very practical meeting of needs. But I, I think the bottom line is to stay engaged and for faith communities to stay engaged in whatever way that looks like. And that's going to be different in different seasons. And I just want to add to that. You just reminded me actually with the advocacy piece. Um, I really want to emphasize that, you know, this wave of people is not coming from nowhere. Like this is, you know, everything has a root and everything has a reason. And, you know, I think that a lot of times in the U.S., we think about, you know, quote unquote, immigrants as this huge group of this like monolith. And for the most part, you know, a lot of U.S. uh, discourse around immigration is based on immigrants from Central and South America coming up through Mexico. And, you know, I think that um, one of the things that I have realized through doing this work is how much ignorance there is in the U.S. around the reasons that people choose to leave their homes, the reasons that people choose to come to the U.S., and the reasons just the reasons in general, and also what the immigration process is like, and specifically why people make the decision to cross, for instance, you know, a lot of the people that are coming over have crossed without visas, without papers. And so people trying to understand why that is, is a huge piece of this. And I think one of the long-term things that absolutely needs to happen is a large-scale overhaul of the U.S. immigration system. And, you know, I know that's kind of shooting very high in in the goals tier of things, but, you know, the reality is when the federal government um, announced that the TPS, that is the Temporary Protective Status, would apply to Venezuelans, um, it, it was huge. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of people now being able to get work permits because of that designation. And I think that when we talk about anything related to immigration, we need to talk about how hard the U.S. makes it for people to work in this country. And I think that people really don't understand like how how much it takes to get a work permit. And also, you know, the fact that people just want to work, they want to support their families, they want to you know, they're not here to like steal your jobs and they're not here to, you know, disrupt everything. They just want to be able to support their families. And, you know, the reality is not to get too political here, but the reality is that the U.S. has destabilized Central and South America for hundreds of years. And we're seeing the effects of that, especially when you talk about Venezuela, we're seeing the effects of the U.S. embargo on Venezuela directly when we see people coming in um, to the U.S. to try to escape the economic conditions that have been imposed on them. And, you know, I think that there's no there's no real long-term conversation about this without including the fact that things would be so much easier for people. Like, they wouldn't have to rely on shelter systems. They wouldn't have to rely on, you know, all of this, you know, quote-unquote charity if they could provide for themselves. And that's really what they want to do at the end of the day. So um, not, to, not to get too spicy on that question, but I uh, just wanted to to include that because it's in my mind, really, really important. So I appreciate the spice and, and the history because some people really do need to know why, why would, why are you, why are they coming? Right. So, so I thank you for that. 
So the red state governors say that they're busing immigrants, or I'm sorry, migrants. And I want to ask you a question, the use of the term migrant versus immigrant. You can answer that, but they're busing migrants to Chicago and other blue cities because they shouldn't have to, to bear the burden, so to speak, of illegal immigrants coming across the border. How would you respond to that? Well, how would I respond to that? Um, so first I'll address the, uh, the word migrant just applies to anybody who is traveling to another place to live. So I am a migrant from California. So I, I moved from California to Chicago. So that makes me a migrant. Um, I've been here for 10 years, so not as recent, but, um, you know, and I think that to, to bring specificity, um, I think that immigrant is somebody who comes to another country to live and work and be here and be here for a long term. Um, and so like where I'm from in California has a humongous population of migrant farm workers. So we would we use that word migrant farm workers to indicate that they are in motion. So, you know, they come every year for the harvest. They go back to Mexico. They come back for the, you know, it's a cyclical movement where there is no kind of fixed um, intention to to settle down. Um, and I will say also that, you know, the terms refugee are thrown around a lot. Refugee is a very specific qualification that the U.S. government gives to people um, who qualify for these these very um, you know uh, specific um, benefits that are given to refugees. And for the most part, refugees um, are are given that designation due to war in their country. Um, it you know there are some some countries that have refugee status that are not active war zones, but, um, you know, and so that's why we use things like asylum seeker to, to designate somebody as, um, you know, they are an immigrant who has fled their country because of, you know, different uh, factors that led them to feel unsafe and specifically that they would feel so unsafe that they cannot return. So applying for asylum in the U.S., means that you cannot return to your home country or you give up uh, the designation of asylum. Um, the asylum process is also extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, speaking of the immigration system in the US, um, it's usually about six years before anybody sees any sort of um, uh, asylum designation. Uh, it's probably about 200 days before any asylum seekers who submit their paperwork, uh, receive their work permits. Um, so that's why a designation like TPS is, is so important for people, um, because it, it just, uh, quickens the process a little bit. Um, so in terms of the, the, the red states, some of my colleagues have, uh, have pointed out that there are a lot of red states extremely concerned with trafficking. And when we talk about trafficking, we need to understand what trafficking actually means. And that is taking somebody from one place and moving them to another place with the intention of, you know, it, different designations of trafficking. You know, it's there's sex trafficking, there's work trafficking, there's different designations of trafficking. And so technically, you could make the argument that these red states are trafficking people to these other states, you know, with the intention of 
disrupting their lives, disrupting other people's lives. And I think that, you know, when they stand on these soapboxes and try to talk about, you know, these moral obligations that they have to save people from these trafficking situations, or, you know, that they, they have such, um, such concerns about safety, especially is, is something that they bring up a lot. Um, and, you know, to that, I just, again, bring up the, the scarcity versus abundance thing of, you know, I think that we do have enough to go around. Um, and I think that the way that our federal government responds to these large waves of people coming in, I agree that it's not fair to border states um, to have to shoulder all of the responsibility of resettling people, of providing them social services, of, you know, all of these different things. I, I agree that that's not fair. And I also don't think that the solution is busing people to a city that they've never heard of before. And a lot of people in the beginning were saying, you know, I got on this bus, I thought we were going to New York, turns out I'm in Chicago now. So, um, you know, a lot of people also, when they don't have family here, they don't, they don't have, you know, a, a landing spot. And so I think a lot of people in border states have kind of a larger networks of support in place, because there are just more people that have decided to settle in those states. Um, again, growing up in California, I was constantly around a lot of um, immigrants that had come from Mexico, Central America. Um, and, you know, it was, it was kind of a, you know, there's always another family member coming in. And, um, you know, we're seeing that already in, in Chicago, you know, we have uh, people, one of the churches that um, is hosting somebody, uh, the, the mom of the family had her brother come into town and needed a place for him to stay. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who would, you know, they, they want to be able to provide support for other people who are coming in. Um, and, you know, I think that for the red state governors, I just think that it just shows that they really do not know what we're about um, here, especially I think in Chicago, people have, have been responding to this in in a way that I have been um proud of uh just to to see how quickly things have come together um when you know Chicago as a city is really not used to um responding to this type of of numbers of of people coming in um especially this this many people who are speaking Spanish and need specific like help with immigration papers and so the people that have been doing this work already before before the, the busing started, um, you know, have really adapted to this huge influx in a way that is just so humbling whenever I talk to them. So, um, yeah, I think I think that ultimately we're going to see more before this is all said and done, because the reality is the Democratic National Convention is going to be in Chicago um, next fall. And it's, I mean, it's their goal to embarrass the Democrats in Chicago. And I think, you know, all that I can say is I, I don't see that happening. So I, I hope that we can provide enough support in the meantime, 
um, to get people a good, a good solid foundation um, so that we can start building on that foundation. Ashley, you're an immigrant. So I want you to tell me about your experiences and how that informs your ministry. I am an immigrant. I um, moved to the United States about 12 years ago. Um, I, so I am originally from Northern Ireland, Ireland, a complicated little part of the world. That's hard to even say where you're from, but that's where I grew up. Um, I moved. So I never thought I would leave home. I love my home. It's still one of my homes. I know I call multiple place home, which um, I never thought would be the case. You know, I I went to college back home. I stayed in my parents' house. I didn't even move out. So when people, when I launched, I, people were very confused. Um, and I'm very grateful for my life here. And I am also, I've always said that one of the places that I have recognized my own privilege the most is in my journey through the U.S. immigration system. So I I'm a white European immigrant who speaks English. Um, and I will say when most people see me, they do not assume I am an immigrant, right? The assumptions that come from when people see, and honestly, my accent has changed much to my parents' despair, um, that they're, they, you know, they're like, you just signed American life. So, um, but so the assumptions around who is an immigrant and who's not. And, and even on accent, as much as I joke about it, I've also talked about that. How, you know, when people then ask me where I'm from and they say, oh, I do hear the accent. Oh, can you say this? Can you say this? And there's this kind of like positive fun reception to my accent. And that is not the experience of many, many immigrants. So even in that small example alone, I talk about how different it was for me as I came through the U.S. immigration system. So, and the reason I left home is I am an openly queer person who felt called to ministry. And I grew up in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, and that was not a possibility for me to even actually be a member of a congregation there. They have changed their policies that openly LGBTQ folks can't even be members. So never mind be ordained um, and follow their call as a pastor. And so I first came um, where my American home, you know, maybe Chicago will inch over that one day, but right now my American home is still um, Nashville, Tennessee. That is where I first moved to um, as a, a volunteer for the church and had a one-year visa. So I had a one-year visa to come in and do that. And then my visa was up. So I went back home for a year. Um, and then I decided to go to seminary in the state. So even that process, right? One of the things we had to do was whenever I was applying, I came on a student visa initially. Um, my parents had to have a certain amount of money in their bank account. I did not have that amount of money. So they had to go down as a sponsor to say that they were going to be able to provide because you can't work. You can only work like on the university campus whenever you're a student, unless you get some other dispensation. So if my mom and dad had not had a certain amount of money in their bank account, I was not going to get approved that visa, right? So talk about another place of privilege in the U.S. immigration system just around the, that student experience that I was able to get. And so I feel like, and, and then ultimately, I married my wonderful wife, who um, is, that's what led me through the green card process, because my wife is American, and so um, that I said, I'm not a U.S. citizen, I have a a green card. Um, and so 
I am very sensitive to, and it was, it still wasn't easy. And I still spent a lot of money, even with the privilege I hold. It was still not like the, whenever we renewed my green card, uh, when you do it through marriage, you get like a two year green card and then you have to apply again. They said they did not have enough evidence of a good faith marriage when Erica and I um, did that again. We had bought a house together, so I'm not quite sure what they were looking for. Um, and so we had to send more and more documentation, right? You think the time that takes, who is more likely to be able to have the time to do some of those things, right? But like all those layers. So even with someone with all this privilege, my goodness, it was still a hard journey and spent thousands of dollars. So it really, I think the empathy that I'm able to then look and say, you know, having walked through some of that and also being very, very aware that my experience is very different and not taken that lightly. Um, and so it's been even just on the very kind of, it, it's been fun to, with our family here, you know, I, I told them that I'm not American, um, you know, I'm from Ireland. So kind of swapping little tidbits of like cultural things. And we, we text a lot because I said, unfortunately, I don't speak, I, I've got a tiny, tiny bit of Spanish these days, but um, Google Translate is my best friend. So we text back and forth and we, we do sometimes joke now about some funny American things that we're both like, what? Like, so it's kind of been a bonding um, place, even though Venezuela and Ireland are very different also. Um, it's a way to kind of bond and connect. So I think it's also, and you know, I think I don't know if I will ever totally fit in anywhere that I am ever again. And that I think is an immigrant experience that in some ways though, from a, like theologically, I actually kind of like that, right? There's something about that. Maybe I'm not supposed to, and that fluidity is okay. And something that we can, I can kind of grind in, in a, in a different kind of way, because I'm, when I go home, I'm not, I'm not the same anymore. When I come here, it, it, there's always going to be some of that. And that can be, that was really hard for me in the beginning of my immigrant experience. Um, and yet now, I, I think especially as a queer person that likes to embrace the fluidity of lots of things, that there can be something about that that, um, that I'm really grateful for. So that's some of the ways that it kind of, my, my life as an immigrant comes through. So you talk about root causes and that, but how do you, how do you think we can find common ground among faith groups when it comes to immigrants? So our organization is um, entirely interfaith. We do all different denominations, all different faiths. And that is because when you look across all different faiths, like, you know, it uh, overwhelmingly, the message is take care of your neighbors, welcome the stranger, give them something to eat. You know, there, there is space at the table and we, we need to welcome the people who come to the table. And, you know, there, there are verses, whether you look in the Torah, whether you look in the Quran, whether you look in the Bible, about specifically that phrase, the, the stranger. And, you know, I think that what a lot of, you know, more mainstream conservative American Christianity tends to um, forget about is, is that huge through line of Christianity, you know, there's Judaism, you know, Islam, there's so many religions, you know, Buddhism, there's across the board, religions are, are based on this idea of care and community. 
And, you know, I think that one of the things that a lot of people of faith have seen and can comment on is, you know, in the past couple decades, there has been, you know, this question of church attendance and, you know, how many people are actually coming to church and, you know, how many people are, are coming that are younger and, you know, all of these different things. And I think that one of the, the things in my mind that a lot of faith communities offer is the sense of community and support and network. And so if you're somebody who moves to a new city and doesn't know many people, a great way to get to know people is to start attending a, a faith service of your choosing. And, you know, I think that a lot of people kind of get lost in the, um, you know, the rules and the shame and all of these different things surrounding faith. And they, they get a little scared of, you know, coming into this world. And, you know, for me, I'm not particularly hugely religious. Uh, I grew up the daughter of two Presbyterian pastors. So I had a lot of religion growing up. I, I know all about that world. Um, but, you know, I will say that as I've gotten older, I've really grown to appreciate the, um, you know, the structure of faith communities in, in their desire to serve. And I think that that is another huge tenet of most religions is, you know, this idea of service and being in service to people, especially people in your community. And, um, you know, I think that we see a lot of like I, my dad, who is still a Presbyterian pastor, um, grew up as a missionary kid in Colombia and um, he was born there and grew up there. And, you know, so I, I have experienced the world of missionaries and missionary kids. And I think that there is this, um, you know, idea in a lot of evangelical circles of, you know, needing to go elsewhere to serve. And I think that what I like to remind people of is how much there is to do here in our own communities that we can do to serve in, you know, whatever faith tradition you are a part of. And I think that, you know, like we were saying earlier, this kind of initiative and this work really starts to actually work when you have as many people involved as possible. And so like we were saying with the the faith communities out in the suburbs, like, you know, people, people see different things happening and can designate them as, oh, that's not really us, or that's not really our thing, or, you know, that's not really, we don't really do stuff related to immigration. So we're just not going to touch that. Um, and I think that what faith communities need to be reminded of is that, you know, whether you're Presbyterian or UCC or, you know, Lutheran or, you know, all of the denominations, that it doesn't matter, you know, how you worship every week. It doesn't matter what you believe theolo theologically, you know, for the, for the fine points of things. So what really matters is what we're doing in our communities and how we're impacting the lives of the people around us. And, you know, I think there's a lot of language that can be used around that, like, you know, whether you are, quote unquote, living in a Christ-like way or, 
quote unquote, whether you are honoring God or, you know, all of these different ways that you can say that. But I think what it comes down to is whether you're being a good neighbor, honestly, like coming back to Mr. Rogers, like I think all of us could could stand to be better neighbors to each other, whether our neighbors are lifelong Chicagoans or whether they just got here a couple months ago. So, um, you know, I think that all faith traditions across the board um, have a huge stake in being good neighbors. So I hope that we continue to to gain more people involved in this and that we can really, um, you know, get get more people into into this initiative. Thank you, Emily and Ashley, for sharing the important work that you're doing. Be sure to download all our Great Collide episodes, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review, and most importantly, tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all the links. The Great Collide is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministries of the Protestant Orthodox and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm Jasmine Taylor. And I'm Leanne Noland. Keep, Keep the, the faith. faith.